This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. From the nation's capital, this is the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast with your host, Rob Snow White. Thanks for downloading my podcast. This is Rob Snow White. Currently, the podcast is rated 14th in the world in the outdoor category. Something I never thought would happen, but is remarkable to me. So this episode is 229, and it's recorded live outside Oxford in the United Kingdom. The wife told me we were headed over to London while she had a business trip, and I had the week off to explore. I got to do some pretty cool things on the trip, but this might be one of the coolest things I've done in a long time. I googled fly fishing the Cotswolds to find out what fishing would be like out there and maybe I could find someone to do a podcast with. I came upon Andy Gray, andygrayflyfishing.com. Andy picked me up at the train station in Oxford and took me out to the Cotswolds. We toured a whole bunch of streams and then we ended up at some ponds. So basically, this podcast would be what his dog Stanley heard the entire day. So we're going to call this Stanley's version of what goes on during a day of fly fishing in the Cotswolds. We're going to learn about clink and dinks. We're going to learn about giant American crayfish that I've never heard of in my life. And these things were 
small lobster size, and apparently they're all over the UK. There's no litter out there. There's no tippet in the trees. There are no flies in the trees. There are no cigarette butts. I saw one piece of litter in a stream the entire day. I came to the conclusion that fly fishing, casting towards trout rising upstream, was probably the only way you could see a trout because they didn't have polarized glasses back then. Walking these crystal clear streams, the water through polarized glasses was as if there was no water there at all. And I wish I had my wellies, my Gore-Tex boots weren't tall enough for walking through some of the swampy areas. And I really appreciated Andy having a 4x4 as the roads alone were scary, being as narrow as they were. But once you got off the main roads, it was all potholes and mud and ditches. So I cannot thank Andy enough for the fabulous day and the time he spent taking me around the Cotswolds. You're going to learn all about the hydrology, topography, physical geography, the seasonality, how he rigs. We're going to break down different types of European nymphines. This is one of the most memorable days I've had in a long time. If you're out in the Cotswolds or if you're visiting London, be sure to give Andy Gray a call. And he might be able to show you some of the things that I got to experience in March of 2019. We're in Andy's car right now in Oxford. You want to introduce yourself? Hi, it's Andy Gray. And who's in the back? Stanley the dog. And what kind of dog is he? He is a Labradoodle. He's three quarters poodle, called a Labrador. <laughs> he sounds very well behaved. Oh, he is at the moment, but believe me, you'll get uh, feisty later. So we just drove across the Thames. So we're just driving west now, and we're just going to go out of Oxford. Um, we're going to go across a few of the tributary feeder streams of the Thames as we go. Um, basically, all the fishing around the Cotswolds is is all based around the Thames catchment. All the rivers flow into the Thames. The Thames runs east to west, sorry, west to east, the second longest country, uh, river in the country. It rises up in Gloucestershire, which is where we're heading for, but we're not going right to the source of it. And essentially, if you look at a map of the Thames, if you just imagine it as a horizontal line across the UK, then the main rivers flow vertically down into it and the the main fishing rivers in the Cotswolds probably the Colne uh, river little river called the Dickler uh, the Windrush and lesser known or lesser known for trout fishing is the Evenload further you get towards further east you go the quality of the river fishing for trout uh, deteriorates and the further west you go it gets better so really the, the main rivers for trout fishing and for grayling as well, because we have a lot of grayling around here, are all more to the west of Oxford, into the Cotswolds. Are there migratory fish that go up and down the system? No. The Thames used to have a huge salmon run, and we're talking two, three hundred years ago. Absolutely massive salmon run. And all the, all the tributary rivers, you'd probably call them streams, would all have been salmon rivers as well. They'd all have been salmon spawning rivers. Uh, We occasionally get the odd salmon who's got a bit lost and the odd sea trout coming into some of the rivers and uh, the the coarse fishermen, the bait fishermen, quite often catch them in the the lower Thames and occasionally you'll get a salmon caught around Oxford. But there aren't really any any proper fish passes for them anymore. Uh, The river is not really navigable, because it's made navigable for, for boats or it was some years ago and they put a lot of weirs and locks in. That's really just destroyed the ability for migratory fish to progress upstream. 
along with all the problems with water quality and, and spawning habitat, etc. So, no, we're not really a migra- migratory fishery around here. What are the, the names of little boats I've been passing on the train here? Uh, they're called narrow boats. And they're basically boats which were designed and sized to work on the canal system. We built a canal system in the UK uh, about uh, a couple of hundred years ago, basically for transport of goods. And there was there is still an extensive canal system. Some have fallen into disrepair. Um, the commercial use of canals really faded back in the sort of you know the 50s and the 60s, and they had a bit of a fallow period. But there's a lot of leisure boating now, and people live on canal boats. Generally, a, a narrow boat. I think I can't remember the exact width, but it, it's uh, the lock width is about seven and a half foot, so the boat is about seven foot three inches wide, and. The, the longest ones are about 72 foot long. Well, let's find out a little bit about you. Are you from Oxford? I originally grew up in Stratford-upon-Avon, which is, everyone knows, is where Shakespeare came from. Um, and then moved down to the Oxford area about 30 years ago. Um, and have fished all around this area. Every river, for every species you can, you can catch, mainly on the fly. Did you uh, grow up as an angler? Yeah. First time I ever went fishing was fly fishing was my grandfather took me when I was seven to a, a very famous Derbyshire reservoir called Lady Bower Reservoir to fish for trout. And very, I would have just totally knocked that guy and his bicycle off if I was driving here. <laughs> I was surprised. <laughs> that was amazing you didn't hit him. Oh, well, you get an eye for it in Oxford. Wow. So we're just heading out of Oxford now. Sorry, yeah, back to how I started fishing. So my grandfather took me fishing when I was seven. Um, very first fly I fished with was a Peter Ross and he said remember the name of this fly and I went to bed that night saying it over and over and over again in my head so I wouldn't forget it um, and I'm sad to say I've never actually caught a fish on a Peter Ross but it's, uh, it's a very old Scottish fly, Scottish wet fly um, you guys probably know what it is nice of silver and teal dressing so from then Stratford wasn't really a an area known for its trout fishing. Um, I did a lot of bait fishing when I was a kid and then came back to fly fishing uh, in my late teens, early 20s and haven't really looked back since and have just done it passionately ever since. And when did you become a guide? About 10 years ago. It's just uh, an odd story really. I was I was fishing a lot. I've got, um, I don't have a nine to five job. I do various, various things, you know, like a lot of guides do. And... I was fishing three, four days a week, you know, and um, I really felt my fishing wasn't wasn't progressing. I'd hit a wall, so I looked into doing um, an instructor's uh, qualification, which is administered by um, this organisation called Game Anglers Instructors Association, or GAIA for short. And the idea was really just to try and hone my skills and you know improve my casting and my fishing. But in the process of taking the instructor's uh, certification, which is pretty heavy duty, it's very similar to the triple F you guys have over in the States. I found I actually quite liked teaching people, I quite liked guiding people, so I kind of fell into it after that. When I became an instructor, I started building up some business, and people start to ring you up, and you meet other guides who pass work on. Um, because I know the area very well, you know, I can probably take people to good spots to hit fish. So it kind of went from there, really. It wasn't, um, it wasn't something I deliberately set out to do. Kind of like most of these things, it found me rather than I found it. So I guide extensively around the Cotswolds. 
and we're not too far from the southern chalk streams here. Uh, probably about an hour's drive gets you down to sort of you know the famous rivers, the famous chalk rivers, the Test and the Itchin. And I do a bit of stuff down there, but my main area is the limestone streams in the Cotswolds. What we're going to do now is we're going to go and have a, a look at a, one end of uh, the trout fishing spectrum in the UK, which is um, reservoir fishing. There's a very big reservoir called Farmall Reservoir, which is a stocked trout reservoir. There's actually two, two reservoirs here, A and B. And uh, it's a sport fishery, basically. Stocked with rainbow trout and, the occasion, and some browns, but it's about 70% rainbows, 30% browns. And they're also, um, they also stocked it with pike, which are basically the same as your northern pike, similar to muskie. Um, pike don't naturally spawn in, the, in this reservoir, but they put about 100 in a few years ago, and they've got very big because they, uh, they obviously predate on the trout there. So it's becoming known as quite a good pike fishery. Do you use rainbow trout patterns to catch the pike? They'll pretty much take most things, actually. The, the bait fish, that, because the rainbow trout in here is stocked at about a pound and a half, uh, that's, a, that's a big fish and that would be a very big fly. So we tend to use more sort of roach patterns and, and silverfish patterns. And do you do a lot of matching the hatch here versus tractor patterns? It really depends. It really depends. Early season on a stocked fishery, you'll find that the fish will be hungry and they'll take pretty much anything. Bugs right now. A, you'll see a lot. Big of, you'll see a big hash of chronomids on, on this water. Um, more so on river fishing. Uh, still waters tend to, the fish start to become very selective as the season goes on. So early season, you would probably rely more on attractor patterns. Uh, and then uh, later season, you go more to imitative flies. And the weather today, kind of overcast, 50s, is that 50s Fahrenheit? Is that normal? This is it's probably quite warm for the time of year. I mean, we're just trying to find our way into spring at the moment. We don't really have any any set weather pattern for for this time of year. I mean, last year there was snow on the ground and it was about minus five. But we have quite often we'll have a February March where it's either very hot or very cold it's normally windy um, but weather is very unpredictable what is the little it's a mallard you've got the little blackbird with the white face um, I tried picking those a, up at, uh, that's a coot a coot yeah I tried yeah. grabbing a couple of those in, in the park in London yeah you can get really close to them yeah you see you'll see a lot of a lot of waterfowl on here you will also see quite a few cormorants as well All right, um, is there a stigma with those about eating fish a there lot is, there is um a big conflict uh, with fishermen and um, and cormorants. Um, cormorants obviously are a seabird, uh, but they've come inland and um, we've given them a, a big larder of food. You know, especially on these stock waters, which have a high high stocking density of fish, uh, so it's very easy food for them. So they've migrated inland and changed their, their habits. Um, they are currently a protected species, so you can apply for a license to, to shoot them, but um, you have to prove you've done everything possible. You know, shooting them has, is a last resort. What's the difference between a reservoir and a lock? A uh, reservoir is man-made. A lock is natural. Okay. How deep is this one? This one goes to about 40 foot in the middle, I think. Uh, it's basically, it's a bowl, and you can see 
Uh, it rises and falls, and it draws water from the Thames. We'll, we'll drive round to where the, the pumping station is. This is far more A. This is the first reservoir. And there is um, a, a dam or a barrier wall which separates this from far more B. Or is it 1 and 2? A and B, 1 and 2. I can never I'll remember. take your word for it. Yeah. Uh, so we pump water from the Thames when the Thames is, has a reasonable amount of flow, store it in here. And then this is basically uh, all the all the domestic and, and commercial water needs for Oxford and surrounding area are drawn from this reservoir. And I read in the paper that there's, they're worried about the water may run low in a couple of years. There's, yeah, the predictions we're going to have a, a shortage. Um, Do you know this guy? No. Uh, going to have a shortage in 25 years. That's not good. So we've gone from abstraction for, of water from rivers uh, again is a real problem for us in the UK. Uh, we went through a, a big um, process of, of building reservoirs back in the 50s and the 60s, uh, but very expensive to build, and land is obviously very expensive in the UK. So, Do you get a lot of evaporation? There's a reason, man. We don't tend to get hugely hot summers, so, you know, they, it, will, it will evaporate out. I mean, this is about a medium level at the moment. You can just see the witness marks, the tide marks on the side. Looks like he's got a sinking tip on there. Yeah. Now, the, the tactics for, for fishing this reservoir, uh, you can either fish from a bank or by boat. Reservoir fishing is, is really quite a refined art in the UK. We, we, it's quite a big branch of the sport. And people tend to fish with a lot of different line densities to try and pick up the different depths that the fish sit at. Uh, and that's very obviously dependent on the oxygenation of water and the, the, um, the temperature, basically. So in the winter, you'll quite often find fish will be a lot deeper, so people use like DI5s, DI7s, you know. Um, one typical tactic is you would use a, a fast sinking line, short leader, about three or four foot, with um, a, a, bo a um, buoyant fly, something called a booby, mm -hmm. uh, which is basically um, a fly tied with some foam on it which will rise. So the, f the lines, cast the line out, sits on the bottom of the, of the water, of the, the lake of the reservoir, and then the fly just bobs up by three or four foot. Small with small um, draws, uh, slowish retrieve, and the fly will dip down and bob back up again. It looks like you can just park and fish right near your car here. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Everyone seems to be rather spaced out. Yeah, it's not a busy day today. There's a couple of boats out. I'm um, surprised there aren't more people here. We'll, we'll stop and just have a quick look here. Fantastic. Um, if you're fishing what's called lock style, which is a style of, of drift fishing, where you set a, set a drift up and you cast into a drift, and the, your fishing buzzer's pretty much static. Um, there's a Thames over there. So the Thames kicks round and it, it's flowing that way. Are these from moles? The piles of dirt? I just yeah, thought? probably, yeah. Yeah, they will be bare molehills, yeah. But this, I'd say today is an ideal fishing day on this water because you've got it slightly overcast, a little bit of ripple. Um, the air temperature is, is reasonably high. It's all right, Stan. Good boy. Is he getting excited with the birds or the, the water? Oh, he just wants to go for a walk. I can't let him out here because I don't allow dogs out there. Just have a look at what these guys are up to. 
funny. I live about a mile that way. Okay. So I'm like Close. right on top of this place. I see some splashing. Looks like someone's hooked up right here. Maybe. I see someone walking over with a net. Yeah. We'll see what he's got, shall we? That's the busy. That's a long net. Yeah. It seems to be like retirees are out here today. Yeah. What's he got? Oh, this is fantastic. That's a big trout. I'm gonna walk over and check it out. Oh yeah, there's, there's they're everywhere. Yeah. Hello. Nice one. It's relatively clear down there too. See the cormorants over on the mm -hmm. platform over there. So he's fishing a booby there. Yeah, yeah. Similar to a booby. yeah these are very short leaves, I think, in mine. And then his reel's not attached. Looks like he's There's got a story behind. Okay. This will be interesting. All right, so the reels seem to be kind of wedged in the concrete. Right, so um, there became a, a this reservoir is, um, there's a lot of these old guys that fish here, these old retirees. And um, a lot of them aren't that mobile. So they developed this technique where you basically fish static. So you see the rod is just left there. Right. Like and you're just fishing a static boat, a static fly just above the bottom of the, of the uh, reservoir bed. And then you're just waiting for a, a run, you know? So it's, they try to outlaw it, but it's, uh, it's something which is, um, there's actually a, Manage, a, management, don't, management of this place don't like it. There's but. a guy who has a, it's called Rex Fly in America, mm -hmm. where your reel attaches to your chest, so then you just have your your bare rod you fish, oh, okay. and then when yeah, you need the reel, I, you click it on. Yeah, I think I've seen this. We'll turn around here and go back. It's big swans. Yeah. Are they aggressive? Uh, if they've got young with them, um, you know, if they're on a nest or they've, they've got cygnets with them, then yeah, you keep away from them, but generally they're fine. Um, that's a pumping station, so it basically pumps out of the Thames through here and into A or B. Uh, so both of these are stocked. That one on the left-hand side is predominantly uh, catch-and-release fishery, whereas this is either catch-and-release or catch-and-kill. You, you buy a ticket, um, you know, you pay for the number of fish that you want to keep. There's clouds of bugs out here. Oh yeah, there's a lot of... Probably go up your nose all day when you're fishing. Yeah. End up eating a couple yourself. So I say, this is the, the big end of the scale of, of still water fishing in the UK. Still water fishing is probably the biggest thing, biggest uh, fly fishing um, branch. River fishing in the UK is, it's at a premium. You know, it costs money, it costs quite a bit of money. We don't have the type of free access that you have in the States. So pretty much every every river which has 
um, you know, a reasonable amount of trout in it and and or grayling uh, will be private and will you will have to pay to fish it. Some of them can be very expensive as well. You know, if you're talking the southern shore streams, you know, you can be talking on a mayfly season, you know, peak season, you can be talking two, three hundred pounds a day to fish some My of the, the more prestigious rivers. Is that guided or unguided? That's unguided. Wow. Um, but having said that, if you're a bit more adventurous and you know you, you're a bit more wild fishing, then you can find river fishing at a, a fraction of that cost. And there's a lot of it around in the Cotswolds. There's a, there are a lot of rivers that hold trout which aren't known as trout rivers, um, particularly the Evenlode, which we'll see later on, which uh, I can tell you a lot about the history of that. And that's, uh, that's what's classified as a failing river, according to our environmental agency, just due to the biomass of fish in there, which is very low. But in the top stretches, it actually holds quite a few trout. Is that due to the colder water? It's down to a lot of things. It's mainly, mainly habitat. You know, it's the H word, it's, it's this thing. Back in the post-war, uh, post-Second World War, you know, in the, in the 50s and the 60s, there was a, a big move from livestock farming. Traditionally, this part of the world has been sheep farming. Uh, there was a big move from livestock farming to arable farming to for cereal crops. And whereas we used to have um, this thing called the water meadow system, which was where... Rivers were managed, but managed so that they would actually flood in the winter. To boil that, that's, that's probably a duck. Is going to come up there? I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as uh, simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. The lake I grew up on used to have a couple of these geese on it. I don't know where they came from. These are Canada geese. Yeah, yeah, it's coming. That's not do you call these Canada geese? Uh, e- Versus the black and white-ish ones that we have. No, that- they're... What are they? I'm afraid I'm not very good yeah, with Yeah, I always those. just call them like farm geese. Yeah. Yeah, the, I didn't There's realize them. you had Canada geese here. That's a yeah. pointless animal. Absolutely, yeah. And you can't eat them. Um, so, back, sorry, back to the... What happened to flood our... Flood the fields. The flood it used to flood the fields, and it was very, very good. The, the rivers would flood, bring lots of nutrients onto the, onto the meadows in the winter. And then they would drain in the drain in the spring, and you would have these really verdant grass meadows, you know, flowers and, and wild grasses, which were great for grazing. So you would have this system where by the every every winter nutrients come on flooded, had to take the, the livestock off and put them into a, indoors, you know, into the barns, etc. And then in the in the spring you'd bring them out and they'd graze on the plants. Um, Basically, that you, on a water meadow, you can't grow arable crops. So a lot of rivers were, were dredged quite extensively, um, widened, deepened. The substrate was taken out, so all the gravel was taken out, so that that destroyed the, the spawning habitat for fish. And then the, um, also the amount of flow reduced quite heavily as well, so that the rivers silted up 
and again that's obviously very bad for spawning for fish. We had um, a massive flooding incident here in 2007 where it was one August and we got um, I think two months worth of rain in 24 hours. Wow. Um, it's mainly over towards the west. Was that one of like the, the hurricanes? I'm not sure what caused it. Probably, yeah. It was probably the tail end of a tropical storm, I think, that came over and hit. Um, and for about two or three weeks, a lot of the, the countryside was underwater. And there was huge amounts of water piling through all the river courses. Um, all, the, all the rivers ran absolutely gin clear. And rivers that are normally quite turbid, absolutely gin clear for about two weeks till they dropped. And it had the effect, basically, of scouring out all the gravels and cleaning those rivers really well. The next year, the wild trout population went through the roof. Absolutely bang, you know, trebled, quadrupled. The EA who survey for these things, and they do electrofishing surveys and count the number of fish in a certain stretch of river and compare it from year on year. Um, you know, though, if you look at a graph, there was just this massive spike. Basically because the habitat had just been cleaned and was perfect for spawning in the winter. It happened at just the right time. Um, we had a smaller one in 2012 and a similar thing happened. But basically river habitats have been systematically destroyed in a lot, a lot of uh, this part of the world in basically in the name of, of agriculture and turning fields, turning um, the countryside into somewhere you can grow crops all year round. Water management, I could probably talk, I could probably do the whole of this all about water right. management, but you know, we want to talk about fishing, I know. What's a, a typical guide day like for you? What time would you wake up in the morning? Do you make sandwiches for clients at all? Um, if they ask for it, yeah, normally the... Um I normally do about an eight-hour day, though I never really watch the clock too much. You know, if someone's someone's catching fish or at the same time they're not catching fish, you know, we'll stay on longer and we'll work. Basically, I'll go for as long as people want to go for a lot of the time, you know. Um, it's not really much point in fishing into the dark. Um, but normal day, uh, I normally drive anywhere up to an hour to get to where the where we're going fishing. I'll either meet, the, meet my client uh, at the fishery or maybe pick them up from a station or, you know, or the hotel they might be staying in if they're a visitor to the country. And then normally start, normally start fishing about 9, 9.30, you know, after we got tackled up, and fish through till about 5. Um, take a break for lunch. Uh, though I'm, I'm terrible at eating lunch, I can fish through all day without stopping, so, you know, normally people have to stop me <laughs> rather than me stopping them. I saw a really neat tea kettle at Farlow's, you just put newspaper and twigs in. The Kelly kettle. Yes. Yeah, I've got one. Yeah, I have to pick that up before I leave. Yeah. Oh, they're, they're really useful. And they'll, you can burn anything in them. You know, it's great for brewing up on the side of a river. And I never have to worry about having fuel with me in a real stove. Nice. We'll carry little camping stoves with us. Just make hot drinks and soup in the winter. We're steelhead fishing. So we're now uh, we're going to be heading west now, and we're going to we're going to have a look at some some rivers now. Um, the first one we're going to look at is the Windrush. Um, the Windrush is probably the best known of the Cotswold rivers. 
Um, it's I don't remember how long it is. It's about 25 miles long, and it was known as a real premium trout river, though it's suffering from water abstraction and water quality problems at the moment. There are still quite a few trout present, but it's it's quite turbid, as we'll see. There's also a lot of what we call coarse fish. So we have a general coarse fish, and we have uh, a lot of chub, uh, a lot of fish called dace, which look like a smaller chub, if you're not a chubber type. Right? Um, roach, perch, a lot of pike. Um, pike probably account for between 10 and 15% of the biomass of, of any water in the UK, and they're present in a lot of waters. I do a lot of fly fishing for pike, it's great fun, really great fun, and it's something which is, is catching a lot more people's imagination now. Um, you know, existing fly fishermen who, who want to try something different, who have maybe fish for trout and grayling. Um, and then from the other side, uh, bait fishermen who, who fish for pike and want to try and catch one on the fly. And there's a lot of good pike fisheries around here. I once read an article that a story they used to catch pike and then tie them I think by their tail to the leg of a swan and then they'd sit down on the shore and drink ale and watch the two fight to the death uh, yeah, I've not heard that one but it wouldn't surprise me pike used to be used to be a really persecuted fish because they were seen as as the predator fish which would take all the all the silver fish you know and uh, particularly it, it's still a view which is um is held by a few what we call match fishermen. Match fishermen are our uh, coarse fishermen who, who basically fish in competitions and you know it's how many fish you catch and tend to be smaller silver fish. This is the Thames again, we're going across. Very good spot for pike there, just on the left. See where those reeds are? It's just a slow, meandering river? It is, yeah, This in this part of it. Because it, it's, it's navigable, uh, it's been dredged. My goodness, an actual person that takes your... How about that? Yeah. One of the few in the country. I imagine that bridge has probably been there for a long time. It's a couple hundred years old. So where I grew up, my town was founded in the 60s, 1960s. Yeah. So all of this old architecture stuff is, is rather fascinating to me. So what you'll start to see, if you look at the colour of the stone on the houses, there's this very buttery, yellowy-brown stone. And that's the, that's the Cotswold stone, that's the Eulitic limestone. And basically the Cotswolds is defined by the, the bedrock. So if you look at a, a map of the Cotswolds, it's a strange looking area. It's not like a, you know, a square or a circle. Um, it starts up at a place called Hook Norton, which is northwest of Oxford, and then that plug of, of limestone goes all the way down to Bath, through Cheltenham down to Bath. So the Cotswolds is probably about a 60, 70 mile region, um, predominantly running from northeast to southwest. And I say it's basically the, the, Cots, if you, the Cotswolds are defined by the stone they're on, it's on. And it's a building stone used for a lot of the houses. So you say all the houses will be that are built of stone have got, have got this lovely buttery yellow colour. It changes in colour as you go to different areas. If you go up to Chipping Norton, it's a much, much buttery yellow colour. Uh, around this area, it's slightly duller. Um, it really shines in the sunshine. You know, you get this lovely glow from it. 
and all the rivers around here are all limestone rivers. We don't have any chalk here. And what what do you the difference between limestone and chalk is it the calcium yeah. levels? Yeah. Well, it's also chalk is you know white and soft. Um, limestone is yellow and a bit harder. And I've seen are these crow rookeries? There's a lot of a lot of corvids around. Um, we have this time of year you'll see a lot of crows. Um, a lot of blackbirds. You also, yeah, up in the trees, so you see all the nests. Um, you'll probably see some, a couple of uh, of raptors. The we the two main ones we get here are buzzards and um, fortail. Fortail, yeah. We get buzzards and we get yellow kites. Uh, yellow kites. And they're mainly scavengers, though. I have seen... I've seen a kite take a, a, a baby rabbit. Wow. Uh, I saw a large rabbit from the train today. Yeah, lots of rabbits around here. Hunting's not really a big thing in the UK. Um, there's quite a few... Around this part of the world, you'll, you'll, the shooting season's pretty much finished now, but um, you'll see a lot of pheasants, which are bred to be shot, so, you know... Uh, a farmer on an estate will breed pheasants and then they'll, they'll drive them into a shoot. Uh, it's not a great deal of rough shooting that um, goes on. Do you shoot? I don't. I've got a pellet gun. Yeah. That's for when the rabbit gets into my garden. Yeah. It's messing with my family's food. Would you say this is a busy day on the road? With this? Uh, it's about average. We're lucky with the traffic in Oxford, it can get really snarled up. Uh, I'm lucky, normally my, my guiding days take me out of Oxford in the morning, so I don't hear the traffic, and then vice versa, coming back in the evening. Is Oxford mostly based around the university? It's, um... A lot of the, the town, hub? Yeah, a lot of the town is a university, though there's a bit of industry, um, you know, the usual service industries and, and stuff like that. We've got a car plant that makes the Mini up in County, which is a big employer. But it's, you know, there's some legal practices and there's, you know, computer industries and, you know, but yeah, a lot of it, a lot of it is based around the university and feeds off that as well. So we have quite a few tech companies as well. Are there a lot of fly shops around here? Nope. The, um, the only fly shop nearby, there's an August shop in a town called Burford, which we're going to go to, or we're going to go past. Um, don't tend to have too many fly shops now. Fishing tackle shops, I don't know if it's the same in the States, uh, but they tend to be a bit of a dying breed now because of the internet. Yeah. Um, most towns have at least one fishing shop, but it, they tend to be bait fishing. You know, and some of them will hold a bit of stock of, of fly stuff. So dedicated fly shops, we've got all this, and then there's a, a big one about 30 miles away just outside Reading, which is a company called Sportfish, who are the same... Same company that owns Farlows in Pall Mall. I don't know if you've been into Farlows. Yeah, I picked up the Sportfish catalogue. Yeah. Looking through that, having a couple of pints at a pub the other afternoon. Yeah. yeah. So have some pretty old trees here too. Yeah. Old gnarled branches. This isn't a particularly pretty part we're driving through now, but the countryside starts to get a lot of nicer in the miles. It looks like in a couple of weeks it's going to be very green. Yeah. Just lots of little just, leaves right now. Just getting ready to come out. But around the 
the Cotswolds, we have, um, especially the west Cotswolds, west of Oxford, um, we have a lot of, of what we call gravel pits. And basically because there's a lot of aggregate stone in this area, I don't know, maybe it used to be a beach back in, you know, millions and millions of years ago or whatever. So there's a lot of that gravel. And that's, that was open mind, you know, and, and dug. Oh, I just saw a pheasant on the road. Yeah. That's yeah. free fly time material. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of that. You won't, uh, you won't go short with that if you need pheasant tails. Yeah. Uh, so we have a lot of these, a lot of these reservoirs, not reservoirs, a lot of these gravel pits. Uh, you'll see some coming up on the left in a bit. And a lot of those have been converted into fisheries. Um, carp fishing is massive in the UK. It's the biggest, biggest type of fishing there is, and it's fishing for stocked carp and on still waters. Uh, and, um, there's, around Oxfordshire, there are probably about 30, 30, 40 carp waters. Is fly fishing for carp? It's something, I, it's something I do. It's not really catching on, though, on a, on a small scale. Um, people are interested in it, and I, I think it's fantastic because when you've got the real dog days of summer, when you're in sort of when when the water temperatures in the in the trout fisheries have have really risen, so that the trout are, are not biting at all, then go fly fish for carp. Uh, it's so easy, and you you know carp, you stand a chance of getting a 15, 20 pound fish, which will take you to the backing. You will not stop its first run, and it will drag you around the lake for about 20 minutes. You know, they you normally always catch them off the top as well. So you, you'd um, chum them up with some dog biscuits. Wait till the Stan fish get upset with that. Uh, he, yeah, but he doesn't like water, strangely enough. Which is, yeah, I quite like actually because when I take him fishing, he doesn't jump in. This is one in progress here. Okay. So that's being dug out, and that's in the process. And and you can go watch flooded. where all the structure is, and then yeah. See where the fish are going to hang out. So that's Windrush there. It's on two branches. That's the first one, and then the second one just missed. So it, the Windrush splits into two parts just south of Whitney, uh, and it's actually quite good for trout around here, especially if you get them in a mayfly hatch. We call, um, I think in the States, you call any upwing fly a mayfly. Mm-hmm. Um, tend to only refer to the dancia as a as mayfly and we just talk all other other uh, upwing flies olives or iron blues or whatever you know so when we when we talk about mayflies we're talking about specifically about the mayfly rather than about generic upwing fly do people use gigantic streamers here tend not to streamer fishing isn't really something which which we do, and a lot of that's based around um, prejudice about dry fly and upstream fishing, the history, of, the history of Halford and Skews and, and all the rest of that. So, there people do fish, I fish streamers sometimes. Um, it's funny though, when I maybe take an American client on a chalk stream, and he'll say, oh, can I tie a streamer on? And I'll say, I'm afraid not, sir. <laughs> it's, why not? Because you can't. <laughs> um, but it can be a very effective way. I mean, I had a really funny day a, a few years ago when I was fishing on a, a very small river called the Leech, which is, is full of quite small wild brownies. It's not a stock river. Um, and, you know, fish sort of, you know, six, nine inches, not very big. 
And these are, are, are regarded as being really educated, spooky wild fish. And I was trying everything. I tried every imitative pattern in the book. I was matching my hatch. I tried dries. I tried nymphs. You know, I was getting a really good dead drift and everything. And fish were just ignoring it. You know, you can see fish just looking at the fly and just not even interested. Um, so just for a bit of fun, I tied a, a damselfly nymph on, which is a fairly big nymph, which is a generally one of the go-to still water patterns ripped it back through the water bang fish a cast for about the next two hours my most productive fly for everything back home is a damsel I, I mean, even saltwater fish I just I don't think they, they think it's a minnow I'm not sure yeah well it's such a it's such a versatile fly because the obviously it's, yeah with a marabou, marabou tail on it right? um, but the you know I think you're dead right you can fish it as an attractor pattern or you can fish it as a natural I mean, it's, uh, it's a, a fishery which uh, I take people to call a lot up towards Chipping Norton, which um, has a very large hatch of damselflies, but they don't really start till about late spring. But you will catch da- catch fish on damsels all year round. And these are stock fish, so they're not necessarily fish which are, are remembering having seen them the year before because they just weren't there. But if you fish a damselfly fast at the beginning of the season, they'll maybe think, you know, it's an attractive pattern, they'll think it's a minnow or just just food, you know. Um, when they actually start to get switched on to the, the naturals, then you start fishing it slowly like a, a natural damsel nymph. It's a really versatile pattern. It's one, you know, whenever I take people, start people off on still water fishing, you know, that's one you want in your box. You want, you want a couple of those in, a, in a, a 10, a 12, and a 14. You know, weighted, slightly less weighted. Where are the hatcheries that the fish are being grown? There are a few. Uh, there's one over at Bybury, which is on the River Cole. Um, but there's a lot down south. That's a big air force base. I'm not used to being able to see that far. Yeah? Yeah, that's that's quite a view. Well, there's a lovely view. It's going to come up on the right-hand side in a bit. Yeah, there's a couple of overpasses near us where you can... Oh, there's a huge pheasant right there. Yeah. My goodness. That's one that escaped the gun. See, this is that Cotswold stone I was talking yeah, about. That's very yellow. pretty. Yeah, there's, there's a couple of places where I can see out the mountains, but I can't even see a good sunset where I am. Really? This is the... My goodness. This is the Windrush Valley now. So what we're going to do, we're going to drive down into it and just go and have a look at some stretches of the Windrush. Picture of Stanley back there. Smile. Yeah, he used to get out for a run. So that pheasant just is living on that little island in the middle of the roundabout. Yeah. So we're going to drop down into Windrush Valley now. It starts to get really rural England now. This is beautiful. Our daffodils are just coming up as well. Yeah, well, those came up quite early actually. We had them up to about three weeks ago. But we had a really, really warm February. Another pheasant. My gosh, they're pretty. Yeah. Right, Stan. 
Listen. And you're gonna have to find a good pub for us. Right. Oh, it's get big. lunch for us today. Are there a lot of fishing clubs? The, the main club in this area is one for fly fishing, is the Cotswold Fly Fishers. And they have a, quite a big portfolio of rivers. They have the, the rights on quite a few, few stretches of Windrush, um, some on the, on the Colne, uh, the Leech, Dickler. That's kind of the, the big club around here. Uh, there are a few smaller ones which have little stretches and a lot of, a lot of syndicates, which um, you know maybe sort of 10, 12 members who rent, who privately rents a stretch of river. Another pheasant. That's a cricket, little cricket club there. Uh, actually, let's go. Private no fishing. Yeah, I don't know much about cricket. We just got a cricket station. It's 24 hours a day of just really? cricket. Yeah. Uh, a weird game. Those guys are beyond rock stars, some of them. Yeah. But we just have a baseball player, 12 years, $430 million. Wow. Just got signed. Wow. So this is a wind rush on our right here. So um, what we'll do, we're going to... Oh, hey now. Get used to that right here. All right, Stan. How old would you say some of these houses are? The oh, three, four hundred years. Wow. Yeah, some of them have been rebuilt and remodeled. They date back a long time, one of these. Would it be the same family? No, a lot of them have pass, passed through a lot of different hands. I mean, old farm houses tend to, a lot of them tend to stay in the same family. This is beautiful. Goodness, I mean, beyond picturesque. Oh, it's lovely, isn't it? Yeah. Right, let's get my boots on. In this little area here, this little backwash, you will find hundreds of chub and dace, and then probably quite a few trout as well. We're going to look off the bridge in a minute, but let's have a little walk along here. There's a lot of features through here. We've got a basically something called a mill leet. That's an old mill house on the on the left over there. So basically, there's a higher level of, of water which is dug out. Which comes they must this love here. that oxygenated water. Yeah. See, that's where in America you would throw like a six-inch streamer. Oh yeah. On a sinking line, yeah. just rip it through. Not very deep. That it's it's carved out a little bit. You can actually walk out onto that. Next there, if you've got waders, you know, even just to waste waders and fly waders. So you get a you get a reasonable amount of fish sat sat through here. So obviously a very difficult current to fish. So like you say, a streamer would probably be the most effective. 
method to that. I mean, I fish all sorts of methods through here. Just get on the back of that crease, and you normally find a fish will be sat in here, sat in there rather. Um, you'll get pike just sort of hold up in the. Let me see some fish actually, maybe. Just in these areas in here. Sandy bottom gives them away. Yeah. And it's a little bit gravelly. Any snakes to worry about? We do get the odd adder. Um, don't tend to see them very often, though further out towards the west we get we get adders. Very, very rare that you see them, and exceptionally rare people get bitten by them. But a lot of the, a lot of this river now is this kind of colour. This used to run absolutely gin clear. The river we're going to go to later on, the Colne, is a very, very clear river. Uh, so this is a bit more turbid. Stan, good boy. This definitely can be stressful with tangling. Your flies up on all yeah. sorts of branches. Yeah. There's a lot of um, a lot of rivers around here. Are, uh, well, so you probably call them streams. But it can be challenging fishing. You know, it's short range, short rod, short range fishing. So you see the little, these little ripples and just the back end of these eddies. You'll find you'll find a fish just sat in that. Just in that little crease in there, and run a run a nymph through there. You know, maybe just check nymph it. You're a nymph through there, and you'll find they'll just sit just in the crease, just set in a slightly slack of water, intercepting the food through the flow. Stan, come here. See, it's like home. I found a basketball along the water. Oh, right. <laughs> Is that a common feature? Stanley, careful. I could find, if I go out to one spot on my boat, I could find five footballs in a day. Wow. Go back the next day, five more. They just go down the gutters and end up. Yeah. These are little foot bridges. Is he going to meet the duck? Yeah. Quite a bit of large woody debris there. There's a few ripples further up. I mean, generally over the riverbed. Stanley, come here. Here, come on. Generally, the riverbed is um, fishes rose up there actually. Missed it. Yeah. Oh, look at that. So, is that a man-made? That will be that will be a man-made groin, yeah. I wish we took all the Christmas trees back home and just sunk them and made structure. Well, we, like do, we do quite a bit of work on this river. I mean. The, that, that tree there, I mean, that's absolutely perfect, but a lot of people argue it needs to come out because it's flood risk, but... This is actually an old water meadow, if you look on here. When we get up back on the car and we look down on it from, um, from the ridge we were driving on up there, you can actually see the old features and the old structures of the water meadows. And basins and channels which were dug out 
basically to encourage the water to come on and they used to have sluice gates which had open winter to help flood so it was a, it was a managed system and it worked very well for hundreds of years and you can just see where the floodplain runs out you know you've got almost like another riverbank just along here and this would all flood this is this trench we're coming to here that's all part of the old old um, water meadow and how long would it take you to fish a certain stretch here would you just camp out and wait for risers or are you gonna go stocking them um a lot of the time on on this river it, in mayfly season which is predominantly on this river where you see where you'd actually see rising fish and you'd be fishing to you'd be sight fishing to fish on um start the season first of april you probably fish it blind, and you'd just be look, using your river craft just to try and work out where the fish might be. I mean, again, this feature here. Yeah, I'm gonna have to film a little bit of that. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's that's Stanley, come here. Come mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. There's uh, like a sandbar directly in front of us and you've got this back eddy coming round. Now, the, the way I fish here, this is one place I do fish a streamer actually because it's even though you've got no real back cast, what you can do is you can just play your line out, get the line to be played out by the, be, be drawn out by the flow. And that fly will swing round and then rip the streamer back through just on the crease there and you'll, four times out of five, you'll hit a fish very productive spot just through there and the larger fish because it's so well oxygenated you know they've got a generally a lot of power and they're quite well fed I mean there's quite a bit of food in here what would you consider a big trout like what would shock you if someone pulls something out of here um well this is a stock water so the the club do stock fish up to five or six pounds wow um general stocking size is about a pound pound and a half but there's a few torpedoes going every so often, and you know. With all these branches, I'm not seeing any monofilament dangling with broken off flies. No. No. Sandy, come in. We're normally pretty good at, um, at the housekeeping, you know. So you're married? Yep. Spouse, does she fish? Nope. Doesn't understand it. <laughs> My wife will go out if there's a guaranteed fish and there's booze. Yeah. No, it was... Uh, uh, so it's one thing we don't share is fishing, which is a shame really, but there you go. It's probably a good thing as well as it keeps us... Uh, Do your own things. Keeps us doing our own yeah. things sometimes, yeah. Yeah, my wife, her thing is the gym. So what is that over your right shoulder? That is a... It's a pretty messed up looking wing. That's a buzzard, I think. Really? Yeah. Like, the last thing I want to do is go to an indoor building 
with a bunch of stinky people and lift weights and just artificially oh, work yeah. out. That's that's her jam. This, I mean, this is doesn't get better than this. This, or is she just gonna go under? No, I'm gonna try and get him underneath, underneath it. Give me a oh. Here goes, Stan. Come on. We're pretty devoid of rivers for about the next eight or ten, eight miles or so. As you see, it's not really a, a river type terrain. Very hilly. Yeah. And then when we stop, when we start to drop down into the the Thames Valley again. Then we're going to hit the first river we're going to see is a river called the River Leach, which is really a tiny, tiny stream. That it, you will see the difference between the, the water quality and the habitat between that and the windrush. It's quite stark. All right, so European nymphing. European nymphing. Well, was you can broadly break it down into two categories and then two subcategories. Um, Polish and Czech are very similar. Uh, they originated about the same time. The, the main difference between Polish and Czech was just the way that the rigs were tied. Polish always used to use a swinging bead on the dropper, whereas um, Czech was just a tied dropper. Effectively, if people talk about Czech or Polish nymphing now, they're talking about pretty, pretty much the same thing, where you've got a heavy point fly and then one or two lighter dropper flies. Sometimes you'll reverse the the weight of those and you might have a heavy dropper fly and a lighter point fly. I tend to normally fish with a heavy point fly and a lighter dropper. Um, Polish and Czech, you fish basically with the line coming directly off the top of the rod straight down. So you're fishing very tight to the flies and you're guiding the flies off the rod tip and guiding them through the water. Normally 45 degrees upstream to 45 degrees downstream. The benefits of it are Firstly, it enables you to fish pocket water, um, short deep runs, very accurately with a really good, accurate dead drift. And the reason being, if you've got a very heavy point fly, some people dispose of a dispenser point fly altogether and just put some lead shot on there, um, then that acts as your anchor. That will sink your rig down and that will has the ability to take a much lighter fly which may be a much more natural smaller fly like a size 16 or a size 18 down to a depth in fast short pocket water but it wouldn't be able to fish at if you were just fishing it as a single fly because it would just get swept through the fact that you've also got a very fine line you're not you're not got a fly line as such means that you can really control that drag there's very very little drag on the line itself because you've got a very thin, you know, you might be fishing a, a 5 or a 6x uh, length of line on there. So it enables you to drop that fly in front of the fish, move it through, following the flow and really control the flow, really control that drift so you don't get any drag. When you move on to French nymphing, um, there's another branch called Spanish nymphing that we won't talk about that at the moment. French nymphing is uses a very similar tackle so generally nine or a ten foot sometimes longer rod quite a lightweight rod I tend to fish with twos or three weights again you're fishing a very long leader no fly line a lot of the time so you might have a 20 30 foot leader 
which is you can either make it up yourself or you can buy these long tapered leaders. Terminating again in a four or a five, maybe a six X tippet with a point fly, not quite as heavy as you would use for check nymphing, and then one or two lighter dropper flies. And what French nymphing is, it's a slightly longer range tactic, generally fished upstream rather than up, across and down. And you're not tight against the flies, but you are guiding the flies through the water using the length of the rod and you're keeping the line off the water. So basically where the fly line meets the water, it goes straight down to the straight down through the tippet down to the point fly and it enables you to get really good control over where those flies are drifting. And again gives you a really, really good dead drift. The main problem with nymph fishing tends to be bite detection. You know, once you're fishing those flies on a good dead drift, you know, you're fishing the right flies at the right place at the right speed, then when a fish takes, as we know, that fish can spit that fly out in a second. You know, especially these small wild fish, they will reject your fly in, you know, in an absolute heartbeat. So in order for you to be able to set the hook, you need to know when that fish is taking the fly, as we know. With conventional nymph fishing, what I call conventional nymph fishing, where you're fishing without an indicator, which was how we in the UK used to fish nymphs a lot, then you might have a nine-foot leader, and you, the only way you'd see a fish taking the fly, unless you actually physically see the fish put the fly in its mouth, which you don't always do, obviously, is you're waiting for an indication at junction between the fly line and the leader. If you've got a tiny bit of slack in that leader, you've got a bit of uh, a bit of drag, or the leader's not straightened out completely, you know, or there's, a, there's an eddy pulling it to one way or the other, then that obviously that leader's got to completely tighten up before you see anything. And at that point, the fly's rejected you, the fish has rejected your fly. With the French nymphing, you've got a much more visual indication. You've, you're seeing the line closer to where the fish is taking it, and that line will be straight and you're generally using a visual, a visual indicator, a bit of bicolored uh, nylon or you know, maybe, some, maybe a curly-whirly French style indicator. And that will tell you when the fish has taken the fly and enable you to set the hook. So it's a very good method for bite detection. It's a very good method for keeping the, um, keeping the flies at the correct drift. And it's also a very, very subtle lightweight method of fishing so you're not throwing a, a big fly line you're not overlining fish you're not ripping a line off the water with a big splash so it's very delicate very subtle she gave you the stink eye yeah no. <laughs> now, do you have to vary the colors i look like the orange hot spot's big but i imagine with that water quality of the last river orange probably isn't going to show up um generally dark patterns work work well to my mind in a in a coloured river because they give a greater contrast but, um, a lot of the time if you're fishing a very pressurised water then you know a lot of fishermen use gold head beads so if you take change to a black head bead you will sometimes find yourself picking up fish that other people aren't catching um, most of the flies for the say summer fishing tend to be more muted colours and more natural colours, you know, sort of drab olives and browns, etc. Um, spring, and in sometimes autumn and almost always in winter, then you tend to up the ante on the colours. Pink tends to be a big grayling colour, 
orange, reds, you know, even blues and purples can work. Generally speaking, I'll, I'll normally tend to use a black bead um, and possibly a red tag tail as a, a bit of an attractor. But there's no real hard and fast rules, you know. Some days you'll find that you'll be catching on a, a very natural fly. Sometimes you'll be find, finding you'll be catching on something. You know, that's a yeah, just, a, just a chicken. Yeah. So we're going to go to the, have a look at a river called the River Leech now. Leech like the yeah. sucker? L-E-A-C-H. Um, and the town just that way is called Letchlade, so it's Leech Letchlade. This, this is this is somewhere you could probably check. There you go. There's a reasonable a couple of reasonable sized fish in there. Reasonable beer. But I mean, this is somewhere where check nymphing would be perfect. You'd have to approach it from outside, so you've got the cover. But you see, getting a getting a fly to get right down to the bottom in here, you know, would be virtually impossible with conventional fishing. But if you've got a check nymphing rod. Pop it in there. And that's why that leg comes in handy. Exactly, yeah. Drift it through. You know, and you want that point fly bouncing. Just saw a riser yeah? right under that big tree. Okay. You want your point fly bouncing along the bottom. You know, you can almost feel it as it comes through. You know, feel it vibrating. And you're just waiting for any little stops or twitches or tweaks, you know, which indicates that the fish is... Normally take your dropper. Sometimes take the point fly. Depends what... Fishing, obviously. Nylon versus uh, fluoro. Fluoro here. I mean, this is absolutely I'd, crystal clear. I tend to I tend to use nylon because I mean the first of all I find the knot strength versus the diameter is a lot better. Um, you know I've experimented with fluoro quite a bit, and you know what I think the biggest difference is the the way you fish it rather than the the material you're fishing. You know, it's more down to the fly and the technique. I use um, I use fluoro for my, all my saltwater fishing, just mainly because of the stiffness. What um, about other bird predators here? Um, we have well, again, we've got cormorants. Um, you have herons. You'll see herons. You'll see um, egrets. Some nice little guy through here. And now, did you guys cut that down? Yes, that would have been cut by the fishing club. There goes a little. But I mean, a glide like this, um, you know, there'll be small fish having there, probably more into this, this side here, it's slightly deeper. But that would be, that's when you're really talking about maybe fishing, um, you know, a longer leader. You, there's those little tiny fish down there. Um, longer leader, maybe fishing with duo, you know, with like a um, clink and dink. Part, what was that? It's um, a clink and dink? Yeah, New Zealand style. Okay. You know, when you fish a, a nymph below a, a dry fly. I don't know use that term. Have you, do you fish it? All the time, constantly. Yeah. We, more so for largemouth yeah. and smallmouth in the summer. Very efficient method. Come on, Stan, let's go back this way. What we'll do, we don't have a little quick look downstream because there's a fish that's bolted there. Come on, this way. Uh, here. There's this beautifully gin clear, good bit of weed growth in this river. This is a. a yeah, I'm gonna have to grab some here. Yeah. This is a 
difficult river to fish. That's some cold water. And nothing crawling in there. Oh, there we go. What have we got? Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's some mayflies. That's, well, that's an olive nymph, I think. It's a small upwing. I mean, say the Dancy and Mayfly, those nymphs are about an inch long. <sighs> cold hands. So I think I kind of have a grasp on why they would only fish for rising trout with dry flies back in the day because they didn't have polarized glasses. Yeah. You couldn't see, you can't see a thing out here. What is that? That's a big helo. Yeah, it could be with the doubles. Yeah. Is this where you just go for bad weather? Yeah. We have bus stops like that. That is a Chinook. Come here. years. The bus stops in the mountains near us, yep. they have those for the kids to sit in. Well, week, that's kind of the fishing hut, but I'm easy so We call these the chimney crayfish. You make that little mud chimney out in the fields. Whoa. Oh, okay. Don't want to step in that hole. I want to take a look at this little... This is the sort of land you, you see, you do see adders around this area. I mean, they'll be in hibernation at the moment. I'll show you this little structure up here, which is, is much narrower. Are these going to the RAF base? Um, I'm not sure where the Chinooks are based. There's quite a few bases. Here. Funny, I had a, an American client a couple of years ago um, who uh, real big, um, really into his aircraft. You know, had his own, had a couple of his own aircraft. And one of these guys, he wanted to fly everything. You know, he said, "Oh, you know, flown Liberator, and, you know, all this sort of thing." Massively into his aircraft. And I was fishing there a couple of days before, and I saw a U2, you know, the spy plane. Uh huh. I saw a U2 take off. Never seen one before. Is that bird poopies? Yeah. yeah. Um, it came from Fairford, the airbase. I told him this, and he said, "Wow, you know, I've never seen one of those before. If you if you if you see one, take a photograph of it, please." You know. And I'm thinking, oh, there's no chance. I've seen one in about ten years. Anyway, sure enough, two took off that day as we were fishing, and five times he was playing a fish. <laughs> so it was like fish or aircraft. Now, there you go, nice fish moves out of there. There you go. And they'll just sit, as you'd expect, in these little pots. You know, that's the... There you go. Small olive coming off there. Good early season fly. You know, the mayfly won't start to hit us for about a month. You might see the odd one start to trickle off in two weeks, as in the big dancing you might find. There's a small hatch of olives just coming off at the moment, very, very small, which is what that nymph that you 
so in that was. Do you still get startled by the pheasants? The fish? The pheasants when they take oh. off. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You'll be having a really quiet day stalking the fish and all of a sudden something will fly past your face. <laughs> and then you've got the weeds which move just like a fish, which can be confusing to the eye. Well, it's, um, it's funny. I mean, fish spotting in, in a river, as you know, it's completely the opposite to fish spotting on saltwater when, you, when you're saltwater fishing. Saltwater fishing, you're looking for movement. River fishing, if a fish is moving and it's seen you first, there you go, there's another move another, another from up there. You got it? Oh. That's a very typical fly for this part of the world. Oh, these benches are fantastic. So all these pheasants are just escaped from the hunting? Yeah. Do they grow wild? Um, no, you get the odd, odd few. Is that another meander right there? Stan, come here. So eventually, do you think that'll just cut through and make an oxbow? It may do. Um, the bank, though, will the the owners will keep this. Um, will try and keep that, so they'll probably just keep shoring up the bank. There's not too many oxbows on this river. Uh, there are not in this area anyway, mainly because it runs through woodland, so the, obviously the roots of the trees find it a lot better. You're right. Big stick stuck in my yeah. cuff. Um, but where it runs across more open lands, there's a lot more oxbow. Whoa! Oh, I'm leaving you across the back. How about that? A lot of foxes and badgers, sites, ferrets all around here. One of my favorite headlines ever was the the dwarf the dwarf porn mimic of Gordon Ramsay climbed into a badger hole drunk and died. <laughs> so other funny headlines this week I've read in the paper. Some racing pigeon was just sold for 1.5 million pounds. Really? The Lewis Hamilton of pigeons. <laughs> right. How long did it take you to figure all these spots out? Um, and to find them? 
20 years. See, I had a, my, my story basically, I, um, I used to work in motorsport, and the company I was working for <coughs> did what most motorsport companies do and went bust. So 20 years ago I found myself without a job, and I thought, well, rather than just get a good, another job straight away, I got offered a few different positions, but I thought, I'm going to take, take three months off. So I went, travelled down through... France and Spain and went fishing in the Pyrenees and the south of France and basically just spent a lot of time bumbling around, around Europe with a fishing rod and a backpack. Yeah, a lot of my business is, is actually instruction rather than guiding. I'd say 50% is, 50% is guiding, 50% is instruction. Right, you're probably going to see some grailing in here. You see the water is a little bit more turbid. This is, this is a about medium, it's it in the summer. This will run absolutely beautiful. So I don't know much about grayling. What what is it about them? Besides, I know they're colorful and they have a small mouth. Um, they're a salmonoid, but bizarrely enough, in the UK they are they are um, subject to the yeah behind that rock yeah they're subject to the coarse fish closed season. So the grayling season runs 16th of June to 14th of March, whereas the trout season runs 1st of April to the end of September. Is there anything particular they like to eat more than other fish? Grayling tend to... There it goes. Yeah. Is that a grayling? Uh, that is... It's a brown? That's... I can't quite see. It's difficult to see from this angle. It's easy to see from the side. I think that's, uh, that's a trout. Yeah, it's a trout. They broadly they eat the same thing that, that trout do because just by default they're in the same water as trout. So, um, are they going to occupy sort of the more shrimp patterns? Uh, you will catch grayling on drive. Come on, Stan. Do they occupy like this? Does he not like the bridge? No. Come on, Stan. Do they occupy just like the same just niche? Like, are they going to be behind rocks, logs? Yes. Um, normally they'll. Come on, Stanley, be brave. Come on. Do I have to pick him up? Come on. Come on. It's like trying to get my dog to take a shower. I'm not going to post pictures of that. I want people to know where you work. (laughs) (laughs) And then what's the population? I mean, there's how many people fish around here? Are there a lot of people that live here that just don't fish? Yeah. Yeah. Like, I grew up on a lake. 
and everyone had pontoon boats, but nobody ever went out on them. Come on. <laughs> oh, there's one. There's two. Yeah, now they are... Stand, come here. And what is that big dorsal fin? Is there a purpose to it? Just how they've evolved. You can normally tell the difference between a male and a female because the males have bigger dorsal fins. That's probably why. The ladies like the big fin. Carrying a touchy colour this water, it's normally a lot clearer. Um, but if we've had a bit of rain, bring the, bring the sediment off, like, you know, bring the soil off the land. But this is a spring fed river rather than a spate river, so that it generally moderates its temperature pretty well. It's fishing there. It generally moderates its temperature very well because it's spring fed and it comes out of the aquifers further up, but, you know, 20 miles that way. But you normally see So this is this is the river I do most of the guiding on. It's great. The, the trail just goes along the sides of it? Yeah. But the fishing is still private. It's um it's actually owned by a pub in the town. It's a little bit faster than walking speed. Yeah. It's a good pace at the moment. I mean, this is, this is perfect fishing condition. So it's oh. Is that one rising? I think it may have just been like water going over a rock. So how would a pub go about owning? Just so historically, they, they own the land, whether the... I don't know. I don't know how it came about. But I've owned it for about two hundred years. I mean, this is quite a. This is a fairly famous stretch of river. It's called the Bull Stretch because the pub's called the Bull. Um, and this is not unique, but it's. This has never been dredged or really messed around with. You can see there's a really good substrate in there. It's got all the natural features still. Now there's a. Again, the light's not great, but. Just here, this is one of my favourite spots, and there's a slightly deeper little trench right in the middle, and that always holds a shoulder grayling, always sitting there. And again, the way to fish that heavy nymph with a dropper, a lighter dropper, pop it in, get it down deep in a short drift before you start, because it's a very a lot of complex currents here, so you really risk getting drag and getting a um, your, your drift messed around with and taken off dead. Right, we'll probably be looking at 20 fish just in this 10-foot stretch. Wow. Yeah, we won't be too much further. I mean, the river changes character quite a bit a bit further down. But it's essentially about this width, this sort of depth and this sort of flow. It's wadeable pretty much all the way through. And the fish are pretty evenly spaced around, obviously, you know, concentrated in 
in the little pots in the holes. One thing about this river as well, I mean, the, when we, the last river we looked at, the leech, it doesn't see foot traffic, it doesn't see people at all. This river, because there's a footpath along here and there's a load, you know, people walk their dogs and the dogs will jump in the river. Fish are so unspooky. And I'll be, I'll be fishing with somebody. There's a, there's a ford further downstream, which is a really favourite spot for people to throw sticks in for dogs and stuff, you know. And a dog will jump in the water when someone's fishing and they'll just throw their hands in the air and go, oh, God, you know, that's for, that's for fishing killed. For... I said, no, no, no. Dog gets out, 30 fish seconds back later, you'll catch a fish. Because they're so used to it. And it's a really, it's very, very good for... It's very, very good for... Um, people aren't that experienced fishermen because you can afford to be a little bit less stealthy and splash around a little bit more because the fish just think that's a person I see them every day I often see a heron just right at the bottom there your herons are much smaller than ours really ours are four feet tall and they, they fight each other they knock each other off rocks yeah if one catches a big fish you'll get four of them I'll try and make him drop it well, there's a, couple, there's a pair of egrets on here as well. But this is, this is my favourite river in the Cotswolds. You know, so it's, when you go further downstream, it gets into really quite good countryside and, you know, right your houses. Very Come back here, you've got to fish this river. Is that a private residence? Yeah. Now you're going to ask me if they have fishing rights for that side. <laughs> well, they may do. But you don't automatically have fishing rights if you buy the, if you own the land next to a river. Because fishing rights can be sold separately to the land rights. Do most of the people recognise you and wave, ask how you're doing for the day? Yeah, yeah, you see a lot of locals on either. I recognise most of their dogs, like, like anywhere people know your dog more than they know you normally. Yeah, every neighbourhood we've moved to, you know the dog people first. Yeah. And they'll normally know the dog's name rather than your name as well. I think my in-laws thought somebody, that the, the dog's name was the person's name for a long time. <laughs> because you say that, and you're like, oh, hey, Charles. Well, the old joke in... Um, about the English is that we give our dogs names we should give our kids and our kids names we should give our dogs. We gave our dog a PhD. Yeah? It's Dr. Jones. Oh, right. You didn't have to go to school for it. This little side stream, we tend not to fish this. This forms an island up to about that 300 yards further upstream. It rejoins the main river. And we tend to leave this just as a spawning habitat. And we'll fish the main branch. Oh, right here. Ooh, that's trout. Nice one as well. You see, they're so well camouflaged on this uh, limestone bed. Yeah, it matches the colours. Absolutely. And do you find they'll be different coloured based on not just the substrate, but what they eat? Yeah, and the, I think a lot of it's it's down to regional differences and you know evolution regionally but also the the ph of water as well i think because um trout in scottish locks which tend to be very acidic because of all the peat tend to be really dark almost black 
Whereas these that fish has no worries about us being here. No, he'll move in a second. Maybe. Yeah. Ow. Crazy. Well, I'm pretty sure you've seen a great thing as well. Oh, Good boy. Well done. Come on. Good boy. Right boy, aren't you? This is a fairly low level for this time of year. That's probably like the first piece of rubbish I've seen. It's yeah. clean. Biggest fish I've seen in this oh. river. I think you just grabbed something. Yeah. There's nymphing in this. Oh, or is yeah. that? No, he's, that's a grayling. That's a grayling nymphing. You see him just flip sideways? They're really showing themselves to yeah. us. Yeah, they're both nymphing, aren't they? Two, three fish there. Huh? Grayling tend to flip sideways more so than trout do, and I think it's because of the slightly underhug mouth. You know, it helps them pick up something which is at the same level as they are. Trout will move side as you you know as you know trout will move sideways like that. Grayling will quite often flip on their side. So you'll see that flash. Grayling tend to be that sort of steely pewter colour. Um, you know the Latin name for them? Timus Timus? No. Um, they smell of the they smell of thyme. They smell of thyme. Slightly sort of wild garlicky smell as well. If you cook them, do they? No, just when you when you catch them. Interesting. And you smell your fingers. They smell of thyme. That's, that's not bad. Yeah. Compared to some of the other fish. Yeah. Beautiful. My favorite, favorite freshwater fish, baby. You don't have a grayling tattoo, do you? No. <laughs> Move towards where we're going to go fishing and maybe we can stop off and get a bite. Maybe. That works for me. So I spoke to Thank you for joining us for the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast. For more information or to contact Rob, please go to www.robsnowwhite.com. A life that has the stories to back it, a life to be proud of. It's a Winchester life. Yeah, baby. 6-8 Western. Oh, mule there, baby. Right there. Tune in every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. Join Captain Justin Leake and Meredith McCord for the best fishing action along Panama City Beach. Tune in to Chasing the Sun every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. Go out there and the fish are where you think they are. Any one of these casts could be the bite. It's the most exciting fishing that I know right here at Hawks Cave. Oh, that's awesome! Experience the best saltwater fishing the world has to offer. Don't miss Thursdays with Saltwater Experience. Brought to you by Golden Boat Lifts. Every Thursday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. The destination for outdoor entertainment.